This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All statements and opinions expressed by guests of the Adult in the Room podcast are strictly their own and do not necessarily reflect the beliefs or opinions of the host, producers, or advertisers. All interviews are presented in their most complete possible form in the interests of free speech. No statements should be interpreted as financial, legal, or medical advice. Listener and viewer discretion are strongly advised. It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Welcome to a very special edition of the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. You know of the group Black Lives Matter as the one that rioted and destroyed with Antifa, their Antifa brethren, the cities across the United States. You, you know all that. They killed people. Yeah, yes, they did. Caused a minimum of $2 billion damage. That was just in the summer of 2020 alone. Today's program is one that tells part of the story of the Black Lives Matter movement. We're coming up on the anniversary of the acquittal of George Zimmerman. Remember that name? He is the man who killed Trayvon Martin in Sanford, Florida in 2012. The case inspired the Black Lives Matter movement, at least the slogan, because the protesters started uh, screaming Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. And of course, all lives matter. So there you are. Of course, Black Lives Matter as well. And it was one of the slogans that the protesters called when they were calling for the imprisonment of George Zimmerman and tossing out his, his rights. The case inspired the Black Lives Matter movement. It was one of the slogans. And BLM came to full riotous bloom in the police shooting case of Michael Brown, which was a justified shooting. That was in 2014. And George Floyd, another guy on drugs, of course, who was killed by a police officer. That officer is now sitting in a jail cell as we speak. Darren Wilson, the officer who legally shot Michael Brown in self-defense, is still in hiding. Cops were defunded. Self-defense was attacked, and it's been under attack ever since. Andrew Bronca is the founder. He's the director, executive director of the Law of Self-Defense. He knows George Zimmerman and knows the Zimmerman case in granular detail. Welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast again. Appreciate it. Well, I'm very pleased to be here, and thanks for having me back. You know, there's a lot of misinformation about this case, the George Zimmerman case, uh, after all these years. And um, why does this misinformation persist? Let's just start there. Sure. It persists because uh, propaganda is done because it works. It's effective. It becomes a brain worm in people's minds. And once you've convinced people of a purported fact, and especially once they've emotionally committed to the truth of that fact, it's impossible to change their minds. So I lecture at the FBI Academy on occasion, and I talk about these high-profile cases use of force cases, including the Zimmerman case. And it's an audience, an auditorium of 300 senior law enforcement, FBI agents. And I'll ask them, how many people believe this is true about the Zimmerman trial? And every hand goes up because they read it in the media a thousand times and they've repeated it themselves to friends and colleagues. And then I'll 
incontrovertibly show them that that purported fact is utterly false, cannot be true, it's impossible. And about half that audience, sophisticated law enforcement officers, about half of them are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was fooled like that. And the other half, their faces turned to stone. They simply cannot emotionally accept the fact that they were lied to by those propagandists. Have the officer's reaction to your information on the Zimmerman case changed at all since we've gotten more woke in this country and the cops are defunded and all of that? You know, it's not really uh, because their reaction is one of simple human nature. If you ask people, are you a rational person? Do you engage in critical thinking? Everyone says yes, but it's not true. It's not true. Most people don't because that's not normal human conduct, human thinking. People who are perhaps are professionally trained to be critical thinkers, to really question all the facts, which frankly you would think law enforcement would be, but many of them are not. Uh, but people like lawyers where we need to be prepared to understand not just our argument, but the opposite side's argument so we can counter it. Uh, we may engage in true critical thinking, looking at all facets of a question, but most people don't, especially when it's not their job. They're, they're plumbers or they're school teachers. They get a little bit of news from CNN or the newspaper, which is all lies, all propaganda, but it's all they know about the case. So they think they've heard the truth. It becomes the truth once they've heard it a thousand times. And it's normal for people. What are they going to do? Their own investigation? Are they going to watch every minute of that trial, that weeks long trial like I did? Most people just can't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, George Zimmerman, what was your connection to the case? I really had no connection to the case, except for my interest in use of force law. It was a self-defense case. It was going to be very high profile. Uh, so I started, uh, and, and they were streaming the case in real time over the internet. So I knew I'd have the opportunity to watch not just the trial, but all the pre-trial hearings as well. Uh, and I just made it my mission to do that, to be truly informed and provide commentary on the trial as it happened in real time. At that time, I didn't know George Zimmerman. I didn't know the defense counsel. Uh, I know them all very well now. In fact, Don West, I consider a good friend of mine. Uh, Don West was one of George Zimmerman's lawyers. Uh, George, I've gotten to know over the years since, because according to Don West, apparently I was the only person writing at the time who was giving an honest, truthful rendition of what was actually happening with the evidence and law in the case. Uh, but at the time, I didn't know any any of these people. I, I, I was a completely objective third party. In fact, I believed George Zimmerman must have done something wrong or they wouldn't be prosecuting him. We're going to go over the timeline of the case. And I want you to jump in when you hear something that's you have something to add on, because I think that there was something every five minutes in that case. <laughs> I know I was going back over some of the testimony because I've, I was watching uh, your video recently. And uh, then I you, you mentioned, well, you know, you should go watch Rachel Gentel's uh, testimony in that case. And so so I did. <laughs> what a train wreck that was. And um, so I just uh, I thought, well, OK, Andrew said to go do that. And so I will. I saw some of the work being done. And then I saw some of the media reaction, the media framing of the case. And I mean, gee, Rachel Jontel had didn't really have too bad of a day, according to these people. Uh, there was, you know, huge, huge bombshells uh, that were dropped by her testimony in her testimony out of her own mouth. And this was the person who allegedly was on the phone with Trayvon Martin uh, right up until the moment he and George Zimmerman got into it. Okay. Now, yeah, and there's good reason to believe, by the way, that she was an utterly fake witness. Okay, uh, I was going to ask you about that. Well, I don't, I don't know much about it. I've just heard people reporting that. Uh, it, 
that came out years after the trial. So by then I'd moved on to other trials. So that's not something I've closely investigated myself. If she was the genuine witness, she was an utter disaster for the defense. Uh, but there's good reason to believe she wasn't the genuine witness. Certainly the note she supposedly written was written in cursive and she testified she can't do cursive. Uh, so she clearly didn't write the note that that was the basis for the claim of racist animus on the part of George Zimmerman yeah. in the first place. 2019, George Zimmerman filed a lawsuit against all of the major players. I think Benjamin Crump might have been one of them, uh, in which uh, you know he alleged that the there had been a swap on the witness, which is to say this diamond, uh, whose last name, I can't remember her last name, I've got it written down here, my notes here somewhere. But uh, so the half-sister of Rachel Jontel was really Trayvon Martin's girlfriend. And she was freaked out, booked town, and then uh, Rachel Jontel took a bullet for her, I guess, and uh, decided that she would go on the on the witness stand. And Benjamin or thought Crump. she could be famous. Or let's face it, if you watch Rachel, Rachel Jontel testify, she's not the smartest book in the library by any means. Maybe she really really got tricked into testifying, convinced this would be a good thing to do, that it would be easy to pull off this trick on the defense, which, which is what it was not. The defense destroyed her on cross examination. In a very gentle way, but they destroyed the credibility of her testimony utterly. Um, so, uh, I mean, and listen, if you look at pictures of Trayvon Martin, the real Trayvon Martin, at the time of his fight with George Zimmerman, this was not a 13-year-old boy in a Hollister t-shirt. Uh, this was a muscular, tall, um, young man in the prime of life, athletic, on the football team, it's not credible to my mind that a dude with that qualities in high school had as his girlfriend, someone who looked like Rachel Jantel. Uh Diamond was a much more uh, approachable and better looking girl. It seems to me she might, she might've been the, the, the actual girlfriend. Um, what was Trayvon doing there in Sanford, Florida that day? So Trayvon uh, had been living with his mother. Uh, his parents were, uh, I don't know if they were divorced. I think they were, but they were at least separated. Um, the father had a girlfriend in the, apartment complex where the fight with Zimmerman happened. But Trayvon was kicked out of his mother's house because he'd been kicked out of school uh, because they'd found a bunch of stolen property, uh, jewelry in his locker. Um, and so he'd been kicked out of his mother's house. He went to go live with his father. His father was actually living with a girlfriend. Uh, so Trayvon ended up living in the girlfriend's apartment. Uh, that was in the apartment complex where George Zimmerman also happened to live. So that's why Trayvon Martin was in was in that location at all. There were a lot of things that were excluded in the testimony uh, for in evidence of the, for the trial, including some of the photos that showed him in a fight club, I believe, that showed him with, you know, uh, talking about with a gun uh, and that kind of thing. Can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, I mean, this was all, these were all photos that would have, uh, could have allowed a jury to make an inference that this was not a fresh-faced 13-year-old kid in a Hollister t-shirt, but someone who was on a bad path of life, a violent path of life, a thieving path of life. Uh, his father had been in one of the major gangs, the, the Bloods or the Crips, I can't remember now. Uh, I don't know if he still was at this time, but his father had that background. Trayvon Martin was engaged in um, organized street fighting. He had not just photographs on his phone about that, but he had text messages with friends describing his preferred tactics to use in a street fight, which turned out to be exactly the same fighting tactics he used on Zimmerman. A quick blow to the face, get the person on the ground, mount them, beat their head into the ground. Um, 
None of that was allowed into evidence by the judge, Judge Deborah Nelson, who, in my opinion, was extremely biased in favor of the state and against the defense. Almost every one of her rulings on evidence went against the defense. By the way, in Florida, the defense is allowed to make an immediate appeal to the higher level court on these kinds of rulings. And every time the defense did that, the trial judge got overturned by the appellate wow. court. Wow. Um, so that's a good rule, isn't it? Yeah, excellent. Because otherwise, you have to wait to the end of the trial and just like have a years long sure. waiting period for a full blown appeal to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But because none of that was allowed in evidence, the jury never saw it. And the jury can only come to a verdict based on what they know. And what do they know? The cute little picture of the 13 year old boy in the Hollister T-shirt uh, supposedly killed by a, uh, a white supremacist for the crime of having iced tea and Skittles. I mean, th- that was the narrative about the case. Um, in fact, uh, Trayvon Martin was, again, uh, an organized street fighter, skilled in fighting techniques, had preferred techniques and tactics that he used on George Zimmerman. We have eyewitness testimony that Trayvon Martin was the man mounted on top in the fight, raining down blows on George Zimmerman, that it was Zimmerman on his back in the vulnerable, vulnerable position. Um, all this stuff. Now, his, his Trayvon Martin's toxicology re- results were also excluded, but he was positive for marijuana. Uh, these were all things that a, a judge could have reasonably allowed into evidence for the jury to consider, and the state could have argued against uh, the jury taking that into consideration, that it was irrelevant. Uh, but the judge excluded all of it, and, and the jury acquitted despite the fact that they were presented only with the most innocent perspective of Trayvon Martin possible. You know, uh, of course, during the course, uh, right after the uh, trial, President Obama famously said, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. There were a lot of things arrayed against George Zimmerman because he was a quote unquote white Hispanic. Uh, And this was the setup for a race uh, conflict. And that race may have played something, uh, had something to do with the original conflict. Tell me why this was. I mean, that's, that's a lot there. You can feel free to comment on that. But Let's go to the basics. Why was this a self-defense case? Why was it self-defense? Well, of course, self-defense is a physical act, but it's also a legal defense. That's my area of legal expertise. It's a legal defense you raise to a use of force criminal charge. So you're charged with some crime based on a use of force, and you say, yes, I did that thing, but I did it in necessary and lawful self-defense, and therefore it's not a crime. If your argument of self-defense is successful, it negates the criminal liability, the civil liability for what would otherwise be an unlawful act, shooting another person dead. Uh, The real question is, why was George Zimmerman charged with murder? Uh, And he was charged with second degree malice murder under Florida law, which means there needs to be some kind of animus between the parties, some kind of hatred between the parties. Normally, this is a crime charge when you have two people in a fight who know and hate each other. They have some pre-existing disagreement that culminates in a killing. Uh, when you, but of course, Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman did not know each other, so that couldn't be the basis for malice murder. So instead, the basis for malice had to be more general, that George Zimmerman was a racist against black people, Trayvon Martin was black, therefore Zimmerman had a generalized malice against all black people. The trouble with, for the prosecution was there was not only no evidence of racism in Jim, Zimmerman's history, if anything, he was anti-racist. I mean, both his parents are quite dark-skinned. He was raised with black children who would come to his home to uh, do home study with his mother. Uh, When a a young black man was, Zimmerman believed, wrongly treated by the police in the community, Zimmerman organized protests against the police 
uh, to support that black, young black man who he thought had been mistreated. Uh, there were plenty of black people in his community, and the FBI, Barack Obama's, Eric Holder's FBI, sent dozens of agents down to that apartment community to find anybody who'd be willing to say that George Zimmerman had said or done anything that could be interpreted as racist. Not only couldn't they find that, every black resident of that apartment complex who had personal knowledge of George Zimmerman loved him. They thought the world of him, and one of them came in to testify to that effect at trial. So there was never, never a scintilla of evidence at the trial to suggest racism on Zimmerman's part. Yet, yet the sworn information, the charging document that dragged Zimmerman into court in the first place explicitly says that he racially profiled Trayvon Martin. Those words were never said in the trial itself because there was no evidence. There was no actual evidence. That information, that charging document was based on a lie. Well, what a big surprise. And the the charging document came from the, well, it came from local prosecutors initially, and then ultimately it was kicked upstairs to the state. And uh, the police chief- So actually the local prosecutors never charged. Oh, okay. So the, the local prosecutors working with the local police department, they investigated this shooting for weeks. They had regular meetings about it. They also talked to people in the apartment complex. They collected all the evidence. And their conclusion was there was nothing here that was inconsistent with lawful self-defense. And the state has to be able to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt of trial. So if there's no evidence inconsistent with self-defense, there, there's nothing to bring to trial. But the political pressure began. Benjamin Crump got involved. Al Sharpton got involved. Jesse Jackson got involved. Because these cases become racially energized because there's a lot of value to be realized from them. There's money value. Benjamin Crump made millions on this case. And there's political capital value. It changes elections. It changes how people vote. It changes how people view the body politic. And with all that money and all that political capital at stake, that's why Barack Obama was commenting on a local Florida shooting. Believe me, if, if Trayvon Martin had shot and killed George Zimmerman, Barack Obama wouldn't have talked about that case. Uh, so he's only talking about the case because there was racial political capital to be gained from it. Uh, that's why these cases are brought. And so much political pressure was built up that the local prosecutor felt so much pressure to wrongly charge in this case that he resigned rather than wrongly charge uh, George Zimmerman. Well, when he resigned, that left no prosecutor in charge of the case. That's why it was kicked up to the state. And uh, D um, uh, Angela Corey, who was a prosecutor in a completely different judicial district in Florida, uh, on, the, on the other side of the state, she raised her hand to take charge of this prosecution because she was about to lose her election for the prosecutor seat, and she needed political capital. And she saw her opportunity to gain that political capital by wrongly charging George Zimmerman, and she grabbed it with both hands. Has anybody ever successfully been sued by George Zimmerman for this uh, prosecution? Uh, not for the prosecution. There's, uh, I know you mentioned, and I'm aware that there's some suit against Benjamin Crump by Zimmerman, or at least there has been a uh, uh, in the last couple of years, I haven't followed that civil suit. I know he tried to sue the news media uh, over over their alteration, their tampering with evidence to make him look whiter in photographs, uh, their editing of the 911 tape to suggest that he had a, a racial motive for pursuing Trayvon Martin. Uh, but you may be surprised to hear this. The judge Deborah Nelson, who was the judge in his trial, his criminal trial, who was so biased against him, uh, judges in Florida flip between criminal court and civil court. They go back and forth. And when Zimmerman sued the news media, guess who the judge was in his suit against the news media? It was that same biased judge, Deborah Nelson. And she dismissed 
his lawsuit on the grounds that, well, you're a public figure. As if he chose to be a public figure. Wow. You know, you did mention that in your your uh, recent video on YouTube at Law Self-Defense and I love Self-Defense and I just like, I didn't remember that. Let's go over the timeline a little bit and you can add your color commentary. March 12th, lead investigator, Sanford's police chief, Bill Lee, turns the investigation of the case over to the Florida State Attorney General's office for review, saying that at the time there was not enough evidence to arrest Zimmerman. Let's let's just camp there for a second, because my understanding is that if he had if uh, Zimmerman's attorneys had invoked stand your ground, they could have just acceded to that and then never had a criminal uh, trial or right so when when people speak of invoking stand your ground that it's kind of a misnomer because you don't invoke stand your ground Uh, but what people mean by that is under florida law in many states but particularly florida in this context you can seek what's called a pre-trial self-defense immunity hearing and basically it's like a mini trial before the trial Um, and there there's no jury because the jury's not seated until they're the full-blown trial happens. But it's a pre-trial hearing where you argue to the judge your case is self-defense, and the state can argue against it. And if you can convince the judge that it was lawful self-defense, the judge can grant you immunity from prosecution, and you don't have to go to trial. So you save those hundreds of thousands of dollars. You you eliminate the risk of you know getting wrongfully convicted at trial, because that happens all the time. And you do it at a much less cost and much more quickly than a trial would take place. A few days a few thousands of dollars instead of weeks and hundreds of thousands of dollars, or in Zimmerman's case, millions of dollars. But the trouble with self-defense immunity hearings, especially at that time, the way the legal standards were, is if you if you don't believe the judge is going to grant immunity, either maybe you lack the legal merits, but I think Zimmerman had the legal merits to win, or because the political pressure was such that no judge would be willing to take the political heat of granting immunity, which is what the defense team thought in this case. So they thought we're never going to get immunity because Judge Deborah Nelson, she's biased against us. She's going to feel the political pressure. She's just not going to grant immunity. She's going to deny it. And if you believe she's going to deny it, you don't want to do the hearing because when you go to the hearing, you have to lay out your story, your case, your strategy of self-defense for the prosecution to see. And then they know your strategy before you get to trial. If you don't have the immunity hearing and you just go straight to trial, the state presents its theory first without seeing what your strategy is. And then you can kind of maybe ambush them a little bit with your strategy and you have an advantage. But if they know what your strategy is first, if they know what questions you're going to ask and what weaknesses you're going to point out in their case, if they know that ahead of time before the trial, well, they'll they'll strengthen up those weak places in their in their case. Uh, so in this case, I, I'm good friends with Don West, one of uh, Zimmerman's uh, attorneys these days. And Don's told me they just, it was really for political reasons they didn't go after the uh, immunity hearing. They thought they weren't going to get the immunity and they would have had to expose their trial strategy for no good reason. So you are looking at this case. You've decided that as a public service to America uh, and uh, law to self-defense members, you are going to go over this case and show how it demonstrates a person who is accused of self-defense and that, in fact, it was self-defense. So, um, Well, I didn't know. I didn't know if it was lawful self-defense or not, uh, mm-hmm. but I knew we were going to hear arguments on both sides, and I thought I'd, I would kind of narrate those arguments for, you know, for the interested community so they could kind of get a, a translation filter from the legalese that happens in court in, in, into plain English. But when I went into this, I assumed that the, the prosecution had a viable 
uh, path to conviction, that they had actual evidence that was inconsistent with self-defense in this case. And every day from opening statements on, I would watch the prosecution present their evidence to the jury. And I kept waiting witness after witness after witness. Where's the evidence inconsistent with self-defense? And it was never there. They had nothing. And that shocked me. One of the persistent stories and myths from this trial has been the role of George Zimmerman as a neighborhood watch guy Mm -hmm. and how he was self-appointed as a neighborhood watch guy. (laughs) Um, There was a neighborhood watch. They did. So this, uh, yeah, this community was having a tough time of it. The, uh, The real estate market had collapsed. A lot of people lost apartments. They couldn't afford to keep them. And those apartments were bought up by investment companies. Uh, And those investment companies quickly filled all those apartments with what's technically called Section 8 housing. People might call it welfare housing. Uh, But it was a a much poorer demographic than the community had originally built. And with the poor demographic came a tidal wave of crime. Uh, Property theft, if you left your garage open, your lawnmower was gone, your bicycles were gone, burglaries, home invasions. Um, and so the, this community had never had a neighborhood watch, but in the face of all this crime, home invasions when women with children are home and people are kicking in the front door while they're there and just stealing all the property out of the apartment. So they decided they needed a neighborhood watch program. The, the whole community did. Zimmerman didn't think of this himself, but Zimmerman was a very helpful guy in his community. We had black residents in the community testify about that at trial. And Zimmerman said, well, if you're going to have a neighborhood watch thing, I'll volunteer for that. And, and the police department had a formal liaison with communities who wanted to participate in, in a neighborhood watch. Um, there was a woman in the, in the department, a non-officer, but an employee of the department. And she would go out and explain neighborhood watch, provide training. By the way, she trained George Zimmerman and she had nothing but nice things to say about George Zimmerman. Uh, and she knew him personally. And so it was an organized neighborhood watch effort. Zimmerman wasn't some vigilante who just self-appointed himself the head of this agency. Uh, This was a normal, well-organized neighborhood watch uh, group that was trained and known to the police. So here we have him legally there. I mean, he, he, he lives there. He's legally able to carry a gun, concealed weapon. He uh, sees somebody, reports them to the police or to, I guess, 911. He says, you know, we've these guys always get away. That didn't look good, but that was probably true. They always did get away. That was that that was a big problem. Did he pursue Trayvon Martin? No, this is one of the this is one of probably the three biggest myths, lies about this case is that George Zimmerman got out of his car because he was observing. He was on the phone with the police in his car. Initially, he was driving through his neighborhood. And he'd been trained as part of Neighborhood Watch. If he sees something suspicious, call this number. Uh, It was a non-emergency number to the police. So he's driving through his neighborhood. He'd just been grocery shopping. And he sees in this, it's a rainy night. And he sees this hoodie cloaked figure kind of moving somewhat randomly around the apartment complex, looking in people's windows, which looks suspicious out in the rain. It wasn't a person walking with purpose or walking a dog or having any reason really to be out there looking in people's windows. So Zimmerman says, hmm, looks suspicious. I'll call the the number I was told to call. And we know what happened on that call because we have the recording of that call in its entirety. So he's in his car. He's talking to the dispatcher about, hey, I see this suspicious guy. The dispatcher asks him, well, is he white, black, or Hispanic? And Zimmerman said he looks black. 
in in the media, the media cut out the the inquiry from the dispatcher asking about the race to make it sound like Zimmerman spontaneously mentioned the race, like he had a particular reason to talk about somebody being black. But he's talking on the. By the way, if you're planning to racially murder someone, do you get the cops on the phone first so you can kind of talk them through the murder? I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. But he's he's talking from inside his car, and Trayvon Martin sees George Zimmerman on the phone. And Trayvon Martin actually approaches Zimmerman's car and he's walking around the car, you know, mean mugging, eyeballing George Zimmerman in the car. Zimmerman's talking about this on the call. He's saying, oh, he's, he's come to my car. He's looking at me now. And then Trayvon Martin runs. He runs around the corner of a building in the apartment complex. And George Zimmerman says, oh, he's running. And the dispatcher says, well, where's he running to? Well, George Zimmerman can't see through a building. So he gets out of his car to look around the corner of the building to see if he can answer the dispatcher's question. He was never told not to get out of his car and then got out. Now, once he was out of the car, the dispatcher goes, are you, are you following him? And Trayvon Martin says, yes, meaning I'm following the path that he took so I can see where he went. Zimmerman says that, sorry. And, uh, and the dispatcher says, well, we don't need you to do that. And Zimmerman says, okay. And he stops. Right there, he never goes further. So there is there is no getting out of the car after he's being told not to get out. There is no pursuit of Trayvon Martin. Because when he looked around the corner of the building, he couldn't see Trayvon Martin. It was a long alley, like a dog walk alley between two buildings. And he looks down this alley and there's, there's no Trayvon Martin down there. Um, so he, the reason there was no Trayvon Martin there, down there was because Trayvon Martin was right here. He was hiding in bushes right next to George Zimmerman uh, in an ambush position. And the moment George Zimmerman hangs up with dispatch, guess who jumps out of the bushes and confronts George Zimmerman? Trayvon Martin is right there. And that's when the fight happens. And a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't know that Trayvon Martin is the one who jumped out of the bushes and attacked George Zimmerman. So what happened then? Well, Trayvon Martin used his preferred fighting technique. (laughs) He delivers a swift blow to George Zimmerman's face. And we know this because he's got text messages. Trayvon Martin has text messages on his phone describing this fight technique to his friends. He gives a, a quick blow to George Zimmerman's face. George Zimmerman's nose in the crime scene photos is sideways on his face and there's blood all over his face. That was the intensity of the blow. It knocks George Zimmerman on his back. Did Trayvon Martin run for safety then? Nope. No, he mounts George Zimmerman and and begins to uh, engage in a sustained beating of Zimmerman. Zimmerman's head is on a, he's on his back, his head is on the sidewalk and he's getting his head beat into the sidewalk. There's abrasions from the sidewalk on the back of his head from the crime scene photos. We had expert witness testimony from medical professionals. That's a deadly force attack, can easily cause fatal brain injury. And then George Zimmerman's jacket falls open because he's on his back getting beat up mounted by Trayvon Martin, and when the jacket falls open, his gun gets exposed. His lawfully carried, concealed carry gun gets exposed, and Trayvon Martin goes for the gun and tells Zimmerman he's going to kill him. And that's when Zimmerman draws his pistol, fires one shot up into Trayvon Martin's chest, fatally wounding him. That was the fight. People don't remember that. People don't remember that. There's so much misinformation about that, especially from that law review um, article, which was an embarrassment as far as I can tell. Um, okay. So all of these things are part and parcel of legal self-defense, correct? And he, uh, didn't, he didn't go for the guy. He was the innocent party. He didn't start it. Uh, he, uh, tried, he, he was talking to the cops. Uh, he was helping the cops or else he would have 
not walk down that path that was a a place where he could have been ambushed. Yeah, the one mistake George Zimmerman made was he didn't make any legal mistakes. Everything he did was legally sound. He did make a tactical mistake. He put himself in an ambush position and he got himself ambushed. But listen, he's a guy who lives in a local community. He's not he's not a Navy SEAL. He's not trained in tactics. It was an entirely innocent tactical mistake. What's it we've talked about three big myths about this case. That was one of them. What was the right. other? One one of them is uh that he got out of his car after being after being told not to get up. That never right, happened. Right. And we know demonstrably it never happened because the only time he could have been told that is on the 911 call. And it's not on the 911 call. So we know it couldn't have happened. Uh, the other is that uh, he chased uh, Trayvon Martin. Well, we know when Trayvon Martin began to run because Zimmerman says on the call, always oh, running. And we know that call continued for at least another two minutes until Zimmerman hangs up. And we know the fight doesn't start until after he hangs up. So there's at least a two-minute gap between, oh, he's running, to the hanging up on the phone and the soonest moment that the fight could have happened. Uh, and if Trayvon Martin was trying to get to safety and had two minutes to do it, he could easily have reached the apartment he was staying in in half that time. So he wasn't trying to get to safety. And if someone's not, you can't pursue someone who's not fleeing. So if Trayvon Martin was not fleeing, and he wasn't, because we know he popped right out of the bushes when the call ended and the fight happened. We know he was right there. He was not running away. Uh, you can't pursue someone who's not running away. Uh, so that was a lie. And the other, the third biggest lie, by the way, the whole trial was full of lies. Uh, but the third biggest myth is that uh, George Zimmerman racially profiled Trayvon Martin. And this was based largely on the edit of the 911 call. Uh, where they took out the question from the dispatcher, is he black, white, or Hispanic? And they just, they muted that. So all you hear is Zimmerman saying, oh, he looks black. Like, that's important to Zimmerman for, for some racially motivated reason. That was the hook they used to um, as the basis for the claim in the charging instrument, the charging document, that there was a racial profiling happening in this case. There was, in fact, zero evidence right. of racial profiling in the case. They tried finding it. Obama sent 40 in hard. investigators down there yep. to find it. And it wasn't until 2015 that the civil rights portion of the case was finally put to bed because there was no civil rights violation on the part of George Zimmerman versus Trayvon Martin. Uh, but the, yet uh, Benjamin Crump got paid. I, I forget the time here, if I may. Um, at what point did Benjamin, Benjamin Crump, for example, has a way that he deals with these kinds of cases? He gets the settlement before the verdict. Did he get the settlement? Usually, yeah. yeah. Did he get the settlement for a wrongful death or what have you? So Benjamin Crump prefers cases that involve uh, police officers uh, using force on suspects where there's a, a racial uh, dimension there. So he so he can leverage that via propaganda. Because if a police officer is the one who used force, there's, um, there's a special federal statute, Section 1983. You go right to federal court to sue the police department. Um, and... You know, it's not so much the officer who, who pays the settlement. The settlements are in the millions. He doesn't have millions. It's the department or the local government that pays the settlement. And and a, a, a department police chief is really a political character. He's, he's not really a police officer anymore at that level. And, of course, the, the local government are all politicians. And politicians are more than happy to spend other people's money, taxpayer money, to make their political problems go away. And Benjamin Crump knows this. So what he does is he creates enough political heat under those politicians that they'll settle for 10, 20, 30 million dollars 
Crump gets 30 to 40 percent of that, and he never has to go to trial. He never has to do the work of a trial. He just gets the settlement. In this particular case with Zimmerman, Zimmerman was not a cop, so there was no department to sue. So the, the financial benefit for Crump was much reduced. What he did do was he sued the apartment complex, and they settled even before the trial happened. Uh, but it, it was it was small money for Crump. I think it was three or four million dollars in that settlement. Now, the police activity uh, having to do with this trial or this uh, case, uh, there was a lot of lots said that the police department was on George Zimmerman's side from this whole the whole time. Well, the police chief lost his job. The uh, investigator <clears throat> chief investigator of this case uh, was eventually fired. Um, can you talk a little bit about that before we let you go, which I know we, we run in. Sure. Yeah. So everybody here. was devastated. The, the, the local prosecutor resigned rather than wrongfully charged George Zimmerman with a crime. As I've already mentioned, uh, the police chief was Bill Lee. He ended up losing his job. Um, I think he I think he resigned in lieu of being fired, basically. Uh, Chris Serino uh, was the lead investigator on the case. He was a plainclothes detective at the time this case happened, uh, and he testified twice in the trial, once for the state, once for the defense a a week or so later. uh, He was called by the defense as a witness, too. When he testified for the state, he he testified in uh, plainclothes as he was a, a detective. By the time he testified for the defense a few days later, he'd been demoted back to patrol. Uh, so he was in uniform for that second testimony. I hadn't heard that they ended up firing him, but it wouldn't surprise me. Everyone got destroyed in this trial. Uh, I can tell you that Chris Arino tragically would, would die of drug addiction within the next couple of years. And I'm sure part of that was the was a consequence of this trial. I'm sure it was. Absolutely. He probably couldn't show his face anywhere. He might be with Darren. He might have been with Darren Wilson, shacked up somewhere in Nowheresville to save his life, I guess. And yeah, and no one who watched the interrogation that Serino did of George Zimmerman, and, and it's on video, it's on the internet, you can watch it, folks. Uh, no one who watches that interrogation, and they interrogated Zimmerman multiple times, multiple times, and he, Zimmerman always showed up without a lawyer, uh, the, the poor naive guy. Uh, but they, they tried hard to break his story of self-defense. They would lie to him about the evidence they had. They, they tried all the usual tricks, totally lawful tricks, that police investigators are allowed to use when interrogating a witness, uh, a suspect, I should say. Uh, and they were never able to shake Zimmerman's story, but they tried. This notion that they were on his side from the beginning is ridiculous. Of course, after their investigation, they concluded that it looked like self-defense to them. And in that case, why wouldn't you be on his side? I mean, he was the lawful actor. You talk about, some people say you never talk to a cop, right? Until you have a lawyer. But, right. but you say there are exceptions to that rule. Uh, George Zimmerman certainly didn't have an, an attorney in that five-hour no. interrogation. But he got very lucky. <laughs> he got lucky for one, because his case was so solid. There was almost nothing he could say that would be incriminating. Uh, but nevertheless, e- even when that's true, people do manage to incriminate themselves in the sense that they, they end up saying combinations of words that a an aggressive prosecutor could take out of context, could say in a different tone of voice. That sounds a lot different to a jury than how the person said it in interrogation. We all saw this. We've all seen the movie uh, My Cousin Vinny, I'm sure, uh, where they accuse the young kid of killing the clerks early in the movie. You murdered those people. And the kid goes, I murdered those people? And then they play it in the trial as if it was a confession. He told me I murdered those people. So 
you know, differences in tone of voice can make a big difference in how the words are presented. They can be manipulated. They can be presented out of context. So it's very, very dangerous to talk to the police. You, sh- you shouldn't really do it. I, everyone says you shouldn't talk to the police without a lawyer present. I tell you, you shouldn't talk to the police with a lawyer present. <laughs> Let your lawyer do the talking. You don't do the talking. Uh, the only exceptions I, I can think of, and I, I don't urge people to do this, but there's an argument to be made at the scene. Uh, There's information you're going to have to provide anyway, like your name, for example. You're going to have to identify yourself. But particularly if if there's evidence that's exculpatory to you, the bad guy's knife, for example, or there were witnesses who saw your lawful act of self-defense, you might want to tell the police, there's the bad guy's knife, there are the witnesses, you want to get a statement from them, so that evidence doesn't disappear because you'll need it for your, your legal defense. But other than identifying exculpatory evidence and witnesses, asking for medical aid, uh, that kind of stuff, you should not be saying anything substantive about the fight. Not how it happened, not how many people you thought there were, no, not how many shots you fired, nothing substantive at all. Uh, just let yourself get arrested, assert your rights, your right to silence, your right to counsel, and just wait for your lawyer to show up, explain things to your lawyer, and then your lawyer does the talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Zimmerman was found not guilty by a jury of six women in a second degree murder case. Could you talk just a second about that kind of a jury and uh, on a murder trial, only six people and all women? Um, right. So Florida's a little unusual. Florida, uh, they allow for six jury felony jurors, uh, except for capital punishment cases. If it were a capital punishment case, you have to have a 12 person jury. That it was all women was, um, I don't know. I mean, I watched the voir dire, the jury selection. There was like hundreds of people Mm -hmm. they went through. Um, It's a little surprising it was all women and no men. Uh, I know people make a big deal out of the fact that it was five white women and one Hispanic woman and there was no black person on the jury. She was not black. The Hispanic woman was half black. They kind of hid the details of that in the media reports. Um, But the truth is the, the black population in the area is pretty representative of the U.S. It's about one in six uh, so the fact that there wasn't one or there may have been, I don't know, half of one, however people do this kind of ridiculous racial math, uh, is not inconsistent with the demographics of the area. Mm-hmm. And um, the some people make hay of the fact that the uh, jurors did interviews following the trial and all felt that they felt really horrible for uh, Trayvon Martin and the the woman who was the Hispanic uh, and black woman said, I wish I could have uh, found George Zimmerman guilty, but, you know, I was asked to apply the law to the facts or generally speaking, and and that just couldn't happen. I wish I could have because she came back. They, they end up, they come out of this trial and it is a maelstrom. And they, I don't, were they sequestered? I didn't even, I don't even know if they were or not. They were sequestered during deliberations, but once the verdict was in, they were just released. And and I don't think they're after that their their identities were not. It's almost impossible to keep the jurors' identities secret anyway. Yeah, they were all numbers after the verdict. They were all numbers. Right. She was just identified as juror number thirty six or something. I don't even know. Right. Um, but the public goes into the courtroom, so you know people recognize people. People they went through voir dire. They spoke. People hear people's voices. Yeah. Listen, it's the biggest trial in a decade and suddenly these six people are are not at work for the duration of the trial and immediately back at work after the verdict so it's not that hard to figure out uh who they were 
But but you have to be very careful because in these high-profile, politically, racially intense trials, um, when these jurors are done and they go home, however protected they may have been from the heat of the politics of the moment while they were in the trial, they're suddenly exposed to all of that once they're released. And the entire community has been conditioned by 14 months of propaganda to believe that George Zimmerman is a racist murderer of a 13-year-old black boy in a Hollister T-shirt uh, for racial reasons. Um, they believe, the community believes that to be the absolute truth, and you acquitted him? So these people come under pr tremendous pressure when they get back to their communities, and they can't recount the entire trial every time they have one of these encounters. So instead, in an act of self-protection, they say, oh my gosh, if only I had known this irrelevant fact or this made-up claim, or I would have I would have voted different, I would have voted guilty, I was fooled by the system, it's not my fault. And, and I understand why they do that. It's, it, it's not because they're bad people. It's because of the, the politics in, in the community at the moment. But you can't really believe anything they say in these interviews afterwards because they're, they're, they're making things up to protect themselves. Well, Andrew Bronca, thank you so much. Law of self-defense. He breaks down these cases on a continual basis. You find him on YouTube or, or uh, Law of Self-Defense. Is it L-O-S-D? Is it .com? I can't remember. You know. Law of Self-Defense.com. Okay. All right. I should know that. It just comes up automatically on my on my uh, IP address. So <laughs> it's just fine. You, the, uh, it it uh, automatically populates the URL. So I don't even think about it anymore. But That should be true of all of you, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you should be visiting often enough mm -hmm. that it auto-populates. Mm -hmm. Thanks again. Appreciate it. And uh, yeah, 10th year anniversary, right? For the acquittal? Uh, July 13th will be the 10th year anniversary of the verdict of not guilty. And you remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a big day. I mean, you never know what the jury's going to do. Juries are dangerous and unpredict unpredictable creatures. On the legal merits, there was no question but that George Zimmerman should be acquitted. Yeah. Uh, but innocent people get convicted all the time, especially in politically energized and racially energized cases. We, we see it all the time. Mm -hmm. Well... Self-defense is being taken away from us, I believe. It's becoming a less popular thing to be able to assert in a in a trial or what have you. Or, you know, you just people just don't even want to apply in, in uh, Oregon. They're now doing bystander trading because they don't want people to involve themselves in anything that may erupt into a, you know, some sort of rhubarb, as they used to say. And and then everybody wonders why nobody does anything yeah. <laughs> when there's a violent event. Why didn't anybody step in to help that poor victim? Right. Well, this is why, folks. That's right. Thanks again, Andrew. Sure thing. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen and give me a great review plus of course subscribe to the podcast it makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs and it makes us easier to find please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff yeah we're still there using the names victoria taft or the adult in the room podcast on MeWe, parlor minds facebook twitter and instagram thanks to 1a cast for imaging editing and production the fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. 
The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed. <laughs>